If you can fuck with gender, I'm gonna do it. You know, if there's a way to fuck with gender, Harvey's gonna find a way to do it. If you don't ask questions, then what the fuck are you doing? Long before becoming one of the most admired and decorated artists in theater history, Harvey Firestein was simply a student in college, one who had no intention of becoming an actor. He wanted to be a visual artist. And so when he saw that Andy Warhol, who he revered, was putting on a play, he went to the audition not to get cast, but because he wanted to meet Andy Warhol. Harvey ended up, yes, getting cast, and the rest is history, although not a history that I realized I knew anything about before reading his new book. As just one example, in 1982, when Harvey was starring on Broadway in Torch Song Trilogy, which he also wrote, that made him the first, and at the time, only out gay man in a leading role on Broadway. This was 1982. He further made history that year by winning the Tony Award for Best Play and Best Actor in a Play. Those are the first two of four Tonys that he's won. He was, until recently, the only person to have ever won a Tony Award for both writing and acting. Today, Harvey's here to talk about his rather remarkable and busy career. He shares some X-rated stories, because why not? And we also talk about his new memoir that's called I Was Better Last Night, and it's out now. From The Advocate magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. So you were famous today for playing female roles, but I did not realize until reading your book that you've played female characters for literally your entire career, from the very beginning. Early on, were you initially seeking out these female roles, or was that purely coincidence? What you're talking about is like my early days in community theater, even. And I don't know whether it was somebody looking from the outside at this strange 13-year-old. I mean, I was 13, 14 years old, and I was a strange kid, as we like to call it back then. He was autistic. So I was this autistic kid, and so I was a little strange. Wait, you're saying artistic, not autistic, right? Yes, artistic, with an R. Yes, artistic. Artistic is a subtle way of going, he's a fag. So when I was in this acting class from my this community theater that I was a founding member of, and there were only a couple of us kids, everybody else was adults, the roles were so boring. I think she was picking up on something else. She, she said to her, can you imagine saying to a 14-year-old kid, if you want to be an actor, you will not work until your 40s. You're a character actor. You're born to be a character actor. You're talking about early community theater, but I was also referring to like one of your first professional roles, which was the play Pork. No, but I'm saying that's how it happened. She started giving me female roles in acting class. Oh. And one of the things I did was Juliet's balcony scene. Thou knowest the mask of night is on my face, else would a maiden blush repaint my cheek. So when I went for the audition for Pork for Andy Warhol's play, and they wanted a monologue, so I said, I'll do Juliet, you know. I figured that was like, show that I'm a real actor. I know Shakespeare, goddammit. I know fucking Shakespeare. So I walk in to La Mama, which I'd never heard of. I mean, I'm a kid from Bensonhurst. What do I know from the underground theater? I walk into this audition at La Mama with all of these people sitting around the room. We're talking about people like Jane County and Jerry Miller. And I mean, I don't know how much you know about the Warhol world, but all of these off-off-Broadway stars. And I got up and I did Juliet. And they screamed their heads off. 
I didn't know whether because I was so terrible I was doing Juliet, but I got the role, and all of a sudden I was put in a dress, and that sort of sent me off in that direction. I mean, not that I didn't have my own gender. I mean, as you know from the book, I had my own gender issues. was a whole other thing. But what you present to the world and what you do is, is, can be very different, as you probably know. And when you say gender issues, you write that playing these female roles gave you the opportunity to express that part of your identity. I mean, did you ever wonder if it was more than just performance, that it was like deeper who you were? Oh, sure. Of course I did. At like five and six years old, I was asking, am I really a girl? I mean, I, I did have those. It was not in our vocabulary then. It was so far out of our vocabulary. And I mean, and who the hell do you talk to about something like that when you're five or six? Uh, I, I, feel, I feel like um, I'm stuttering because like it's not appropriate to like ask, like, are you trans? But, like it sounds like I, I guess like, eventually you decided like actually no, like I am a man, like I am Harvey. This is who I am, right? I don't know. You know, I'm comfortable being me. And if I asked myself, would you want to transition? The answer is no, because I know how hard it is to put all that shit on every day. And, and, I, and, and once again, in the acting, I get to do that. That, you know, playing gay roles, playing, playing women's roles, rather, has allowed me to do that. And it has allowed me to express my female self when I was doing hairspray. Nothing made me happier than the company calling me mama. When I was doing Fiddler on the Roof, nothing made me happier than the company calling me Papa. So I didn't really have a preference for which one I was to either one of the companies. And I guess I always was me, and I always will be me. If you can fuck with gender, I'm going to do it. You know, if there's a way to fuck with gender, Harvey's going to find a way to do it. If you don't ask questions, then what the fuck are you doing? I mean, that's the, that's the problem with happy people. Happy people don't ask questions. But that's the adventure. The adventure is getting the answer or going towards an answer. Before we move off your early career, though, we were talking about these early underground theater shows that you were doing. Was it always your goal to work your way up and eventually get to Broadway? No. The answer is no. Most biographies, most memoirs that you read of show business people begin with, and I went to see the show and I said, that's going to be me up on that stage someday. Or they went and saw a movie and said, that's going to be me on that silver screen. I didn't want to be an actor. I didn't want to be a writer. I had nothing. This is not in my vocabulary, not in my wants at all. I found that all day long, people are asking you to do things. And most times we say no. You know, we have, we're on a sort of track of our own, which is just a lazy track usually. And people ask us to do something out of the way, and we say no. Life does not change when you say no. Not that every yes makes it better. A lot of yeses make it worse. But life doesn't change if you say no. It's only if you say yes. So this girl in freshman in high school said, my mother's starting a community theater. Would you like to come and help us make posters? They didn't have money to make posters. So there I am in a basement of a church getting high-smelling magic markers. And they said, you want to pull the curtain? Why not? I like like the theater, so I pulled the curtain. Then they were doing Our Town, the show Our Town. And my friend Michael wanted to audition to play the newsboy. 
And he said, you have to audition too. I said, why? He said, because I'm going to audition. I said, so audition. And he said, no, I don't want to be the only kid who shows up. They'll give me the role. And I didn't get the role because I was good. I got the role. So I said, fine. So I, we auditioned and I got the role. <laughs> but there were two newsboys. So we each got a role. And so all of a sudden I was acting. Then I was making sets for them and designing sets and finding out about lighting. And then, and then I was an art student, you know. So there was an ad in the paper that said, Andy Warhol is auditioning for a play. I'm dying to meet Andy Warhol. I want to be in this fucking play. I want to meet Andy Warhol. Oh, because you were studying art. You just wanted to meet a famous artist. Well, yes, because I worshipped him before he was an artist. Well, no, he was always an artist. But before I knew he was making this art, I loved his drawings for Bloomingdale's ads of shoes. I thought his drawings were absolute genius, the broken line drawings. I mean, you must have seen his shoe drawings, no? I have not. Okay, you know what? You look them up. Look up Andy Warhol's shoe drawings. They're everywhere. You can buy them on the internet and everything else. He did a lot of illustrations. He did a little book of angels. You can always find those. So I loved his, I loved that art before the Warhol became Warhol. But here he was doing a play, and I said, I can meet Andy Warhol. So I went down to the audition with my little Juliet in hand, not to get a role in the show. And of course, who's there? Not Andy Warhol. What's that? Andy Warhol don't show up to do nothing. <laughs> but all of a sudden, I meet these other people. And I said yes. They said yes to me. And as I'm sitting around with them, I start realizing I'm not in a play like at community theater. I'm in this movement called Off-Off-Broadway, this experimental theater movement. What the hell did I know? Like I said, I'm from Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. What do I know about, about experimental theater? And so all of a sudden, I'm in the Theater of the Ridiculous and the Playhouse of the Ridiculous, and I'm meeting artists, and, you know, and, and I'm going to school at the same time, because by then I'm in college, and I'm going to Pratt to be an artist. And during the day, I'm being lectured about and then there's this artist named Ray Johnson, who is creating this movement called male art. Well, I'm hanging out with Ray Johnson at night. So they're telling me about this art movement during the day. I'm living it at night. And what the hell am I doing there? I'm not that kind of an artist. I'm not good enough. But life says here, and if you show up, it's there. I'm hanging out on the street, on Christopher Street, you know, with, with my friends, with my street queen friends, who then you would all know as Marsha P. Johnson and people like that. But I wasn't there to be with somebody you would know as Marsha P. Johnson. I'm there because Marsha and I are friends and Joey and, and Christian Soldier and everybody else. So I wrote this book. And while I'm writing this book, I'm seeing this pattern, which has no pattern. So at what point did it become acting as a way to meet Warhol and just have fun and hang out with friends to then this is something I'm pursuing? Because you, you know, doing Torch Song Trilogy, getting into Broadway was not an easy thing. When did it become the point, the goal? It wasn't. Ever. No, I mean, to, to, to succeed is always the goal. Whether I'm doing a drawing or I'm writing something or I'm acting in something, to succeed, to do it well, do it so that you have done something good is always the goal. But the goal to succeed, like become a Broadway star, was not ever the goal. I did not want Torch Song to move to Broadway. I let it move to Broadway, hoping it would close. 
because the show is such a big hit off-Broadway. I tell the story in the book. I come out of the subway at the Christopher Street Station, and down the block, down 7th Avenue, was where the Actors Playhouse was. And there was a line from the Actors Playhouse around the corner, up the next street. I forget what street that is. And I went, oh, my God, I'm going to be stuck in this fucking thing for how long? This thing's like a big hit. And they were begging me to move the show to Broadway. And I thought, you know what? If it moves to Broadway, it'll close. Because who's going to, what Broadway audience is going to sit there while somebody's getting fucked up the ass for 10 minutes? So the show will close and I'll have a Broadway credit. And so this was 1982. I think that we think of Broadway as this like gay utopia, the safe haven for queer people. And yet you wrote that Torch Song trilogy. It made you the first and only at the time, the first and only out gay leading man on Broadway. When you wrote that, I had to reread it a couple of times because I found it so unbelievable. Unbelievable. Unfucking believable Totally surrounded by gay people. Every one of them in the closet. It is unfucking believable to me. What are you hiding from? What are you hiding from? You're a big star. What the fuck's wrong with you? What are you hiding from? Did that change with the AIDS crisis, which like brought so many people out? No, it went the other way. When the AIDS crisis hit, no one wanted to be gay. Waiters didn't want to be gay. Actors didn't want to be gay. People stopped going to restaurants because they knew the waiters were gay. And they spit in your food and you'll get AIDS. Some people didn't go to theater because they knew there were a lot of gay people there. No, it was the opposite. And that's why, if you read your little history books, you will find that the whole outing movement started. The whole outing movement was the gay people who were out there fighting AIDS saying, what the fuck are you doing hiding? You're, not, you're hurting us. You're hurting us by hiding. You could be helping if people realized, because people were so scared of people with AIDS, they were scared of gay people. And we were like screaming, not we, the movement was screaming. And so outing became a big thing. I mean, you can read about that, right? In your little gay history books. Well, I actually brought a quote from one of those little gay history books, as you call it. And this was from Peter Staley's book, Never Silent. Peter Staley, one of the leaders in ACT UP, he talked about how they needed money to do what they did to accomplish their goals, that selling buttons wasn't doing it. And the biggest and most successful thing that they did was to launch a national direct mail fundraising campaign. He wrote that the first mailing they were sent out had a cover letter written and signed by you. Do you remember this at all? Yeah, so oh, so I wrote one of those early letters. I, nothing I would remember. Yeah, he said it was a massive test, and they had no idea what the response would be. So they tested it out by sending out 50,000 letters, and close to $70,000 came back, which stunned them. And so they did it again. This time they sent out the same letter, signed by Harvey Firestein, and he writes that using the same cover letter that you wrote, this time they sent out 150,000 letters, and he writes, In total, our Harvey Firestein direct mail campaign grossed around $300,000. They followed this up with another letter, which grossed even more. He says that, quote, Direct mail would become a stable source of funding for ACT UP, in the years ahead. You got me. I don't remember that at all. So you've never heard those numbers? You hear a lot of shit. (laughs) But I don't remember that story. Wow. So, 
listen, when we when we were doing things back then, you know, I mean, I don't remember Whoopi Goldberg and I doing the first benefit for. I don't remember what the fuck we used to do. We used to do these benefits, and we would ha- we'd be out there screaming into the wind, you know. Well, tell me this. AIDS, as you write, like unmasked the gay community, that suddenly we were in papers and on the news. However, it was always covering gay people in relation to AIDS. Right. They were intertwined. When did you start to see that separate itself out, that like gay men could exist in public without that as the story? I, I didn't, which is why which is why I refused to put AIDS in Tort Song. Tort Song, the movie, had nothing to do with Tort Song, the play, because we were already off-Broadway by the time AIDS even began. But when the movie happened, everybody wanted me to put AIDS into it. And I said, it has nothing to do with it. And I couldn't understand, but this is your identity. You're just hiding from it. You're just scared. You're hiding. And I said, does every movie about a Jewish family start with Tay-Sachs? You, you can find a disease that, that goes with every group. Of t- I'm not defined by AIDS. Our generation wasn't defined by AIDS. And, you know, with your generation, I was actually very fascinated by what you wrote about the underground hookup culture. I think this was the 70s. Obviously, people are still hooking up, but so many of the locations that you wrote about no longer exist, like the underground restrooms and the subways and the trucks on the west side. I think I describe it in, a, in very, like, innocent ways. Because it was sort of innocent. I mean, it's why I've never understood heterosexuality. Boys, you just have to open the zipper and you all can have a good time and then go for pizza. Or you could get more involved, you know, depending. Well, actually, though, when you say, when you were joking about like going for pizza after, were these more anonymous hookups? Or would you actually like hook up and then go for pizza and like talk? No, no, no. The rule was, no, there's no talking. This is not about talking. It's about fantasy. No, this is not about talking. That was sort of the rule of these places, was this is fantasy. And keep your mouth shut. People did use devices, such as cigarettes. Because if you puffed on a cigarette very close to someone's face, it would light up their face if you were into faces. This was not a place. These were not places where people were into faces. <laughs> these rules about, like, no faces and the, the, just, like, the secretness of the locations. Were you part of a gay community where you, like, were taught about these places? Like, how did you learn this info? Hmm. I had come from Brooklyn, you know, and now all of a sudden I was in Manhattan because of pork. So I was in the East Village. I think they would, because I was so young and innocent, and I really was young and innocent, those pe- the people in the pork area would tease me about going to the trucks, which is how I, I heard about the trucks. So, so with the trucks, like my understanding is that like, it was just like a thing to do. Like you can hang with friends in the park, you can meet friends at a bar, you can go to the trucks. Like it felt common in a way. Is, am I wrong in that understanding? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you had sex scenes that were specifically for sex and not for socializing. So you could have a bar like International Stud that I obviously wrote about where the front room was a regular bar and you could meet with your friends and all that. The back room, people were back there having sex. They were not talking. There were no lights. It was pitch black. And you were back there to have sex. And that was not where you stood there and talked to your friends. So it was different. The trucks was not where you meet your friends and hang out. It was to go to have sex. You're tired already of your friends. You want to get off and go home to sleep. The same thing like the baths, though the baths became... Now, I didn't know much about the baths because I had no money, and the baths cost money to go in. 
But the bands became that other scene because they had this bar and the cabaret and, you know, became Bette Midler Land and Hollywood Lawn performed at the bands and Jackie Curtis performed at the bands and all that. So that became a different kind of a scene. So the trucks, which like people on the podcast, like Dr. Charles Silverstein, who wrote The Joy of Gay Sex, he talked a lot about that in our interview. Was that somewhere like the majority of gay people you know went to or was it just kind of like the horniest? No, <laughs> the horniest. Okay. The horniest or the, or the busiest. Oh. I was going to school full time. I was working, I don't know how many jobs, you know, do, doing jobs for money, plus my jobs in theater, doing three or four shows at a time. I would be rehearsing one show, doing an eight o'clock show at La Mama, a 10 o'clock show at the WPA. I had to get off. I didn't have time for a conversation. You want to talk about the weather? Talk to her. I got to get off and go to bed. I'm tired. So the trucks was for me. That's what it was. Did it become it? Did it become an addiction though? Yes. Really? I had this all of a sudden this moment that I call my Colette moment. When he and he and he become them, I gave up men. And that's when I stopped having that kind of sex. And that timing was like darkly fortuitous with like the coming AIDS crisis. Exactly. The exact moment. The exact moment. And, and so like that saved you. Right? If you want to use that word, saved. No? Is there a better word choice? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I hate to think, you know, out of, my, out of, out of the people that I love to, to, that died, I, to think that they were not saved, I, 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 it's not the language I would put on it. I just didn't get it. I mean, but I, I obviously was sleeping with people that could have had AIDS. I mean, I didn't stop having sex. I stopped having anonymous sex. One more question about the like anonymous nature of these hookups. Would your voice ever give you away since it is so recognizable? I wasn't famous. Yeah, this, all of this happened. All I, I, when, when, when Torch Song moved off Broadway is when I gave up that. So I wasn't famous. Were there people who knew who I was? I was, okay, this is a cute story. For a gay audience, maybe. So I'm performing the haunted host at the Charles Playhouse in Boston. But there was a bar... I think it was called the Ramrod. I'm not really sure. It was a bar. On the main floor, it was a leather bar. Then there was, you went up a flight of stairs, and that's where the men's rooms were. And the men's rooms were active sex. And so I went to that bar a lot, especially since I was performing. And like I said, sometimes you just got to get off and go home to go to sleep. So I went up there, and I'm in the bathroom, and I don't know, I was blowing somebody. I'm down on my knees, and... and and he comes and taps me on the shoulder and says, by the way, you were great tonight. He had just seen me in the show. So, <laughs> so it does happen. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> but those were before George Song. Is sex an important part of your life today? Yeah, but you know, I'm 69. It's a little different. It's different. You know, I'm not all that interested in chasing 19-year-olds because <laughs> they let you catch them. But... I find, and I also find the whole silver daddy scene kind of fascinating, though I have not partaken of it, but I find the whole thing of these men who've gone down to Florida to retire from life, all of a sudden being the objects of, of sexual desire, I think it's fabulous and fascinating, and I'm dying to write something about that. I mean, you've a full head of silver hair. Have you entered, like, that identity well, I'm 69 years old. I mean, I, I, if I don't enter now, I'm going to be in the graveyard entering. But yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I have no complaints. 
but um, but yeah, but it, it definitely life changes. Before I let you go, we do also have to talk about hairspray and Edna just a bit more. You mean we're done talking about sex? Oh, we don't have to. No, 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 no I'm teasing you. I, I, yes, no, we really should talk about something other than sex. Thank you for humoring me with those questions. <laughs> I was bringing it up, though, because the role of Edna was created by Divine, who you like met a few times on the underground theater scene. And you wrote that she said to you, you and me, we are both cared for by the same abusers. What did she mean by that? Let me talk in terms of her, because she definitely was different than I. She created this persona. Yeah. This absolutely incredible, never seen before on the planet persona. And then a lot of people came, a lot of people less talented than she came around to use her. You know, I can use her in this, I can use you in that, and I can use you. And got their, their piece of fame off her. And that's what she meant by that. She was, you know, these are not people that really care about you. It's what can they get out of you. And what they got out of Divine is they got a certain amount of street cred. And and so that was Divine's perception of her career. Do you agree with her assessment that it's the same for you? No, because because I write my own pieces, because I write for other people, because I pick and choose what I would do. I wouldn't have done 90% of what Devon, some of the stuff she was offered, I was offered to and turned down. Wow. I mean, she worked really, really hard on this persona Divine. For her, it was creating the persona, you know, whether, and there are, and there are you know, there, we know a lot of people like that. You know, RuPaul's Drag Race, all my sisters on that somewhat suffer from that, of creating this persona, and then how do I build a career around a persona? I never was about that i always wanted to in the in the more of the sense of the chameleon or 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 losing myself behind i wouldn't say i played you know i played female roles and i don't think they were all the same i didn't come out with the same makeup or whatever i mean i played bella absolute in men's clothes i played edna in in women's clothes and so with edna you say that playing her you fell in love with yourself and that you came to feel at home when playing her you wrote that Maybe it was the role, maybe it was a costume, maybe it was the enormous rubber tits, maybe it was all just a joke played on me, but I believed in Edna. Right. I think that you were 50 at the time? Well, it's 20 years ago, yeah. It'll be 20 years in August. So like in your 50s, like what did she help teach you about yourself that you didn't know? It wasn't hiding behind her. It just, it, it allowed me to express that whole other motherly sort of side. But also, she was very sexy. You know, for a big woman, she was very sexy. I'll tell you a story that's not in the book. We were just doing, we were just starting performances on Broadway. And all the way upstage, I had a crossover that I had to go behind set pieces where they're out on stage singing and dancing. And I had to squeeze through this tiny area backstage to get from one side of the stage to the other to change clothes. And as I came through, one of the stagehands, and like I said, it was very early in the run, so we didn't really all know each other yet. All of a sudden, grabbed me from behind, grabbed me by the tits and you know, you've seen photographs of Edna's tits. You know, they were out. They were marumba. And grabbed me by the tits. And I felt his hot breath. These are big, strong, heterosexual stagehands, right? And this was the biggest and strongest of them all. And he whispers in my ear, Oh, God, I want to get the line right. If these were real, you'd be wiping cum off your chin for a month. 
It was so fucking exciting. I can't tell you. That was like... And we went on to become very dear friends. And his wife used to even cook for me. But there was a power in Edna's sexuality. There was a power in Edna's voluptuousness. Yeah. And because I played her as such an introverted, sad thing at the beginning, and then you watched her become this woman, you know, usually in shows like that, it's about, it would have been about the daughter becoming free, but instead it's the daughter who frees the mother. That's what's so beautiful about it. She was Eliza Doolittle, right? Last question, but you have this book coming out. You have the new adaptation of Funny Girl, a musical coming on Broadway. Do you have non-career personal goals you have for like your life? Yeah, I'm the laziest gal in town. I've got seven projects. I counted them up. I have seven projects going at the moment. My life is still more important than anything else. So my friends, you know, and, and I have a set of friends. I live in a small fictional town in Connecticut. And so I have my fictional town friends. And then I have my city friends who I have not seen. But Funny Girl goes into rehearsal on Monday and I will be there, you know, and I'm obviously doing all this press and stuff like that. What time is it, by the way? Two, oh, my God. Two minutes. I got to get to my next interview. But anyway, so, so yes, so I do have a real life that's much more important than my career. No, I'll, I'll let you go. Thank you for spending so much time today. Well, thank you. I wouldn't have done it except you're so cute and you're a friend of Richie's and you're so old to me. And that was Harvey Firestein. Their new memoir is called I Was Better Last Night and it's out right now. And then next week, we're back with an icon of lesbian history, and that is the 87-year-old Ruthie Berman. The grief is there with the loss. There's been times where I would like to say goodbye. I'm done. We don't deal with death very easily. We don't deal with aging here. The least people our government takes care of are the elders and the youth. Our education system, and I was in it, sucks. Ruthie and her wife, Connie Kurtz, and their love story are the subject of an amazing documentary called Ruthie and Connie, Every Room in the House. It is the newest episode in our LGBTQ plus elder series. Thank you so much to everyone who's helped to spread the word about the series. Things like that really do make a huge difference for our show beyond just making me feel good. So please keep it up. Send those tweets, post on Facebook, text your friends. And if you do post on social media, please come tag us. We are on there at LGBTQ pod. I'm on there at Jeff Masters one. We are brought to you by the Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.